0: To everyone who's come in person, thank you for being with us. To anyone tuning in live, and to anyone listening later in the week, thank you for taking the time. I really love that last song. I requested it, um, a favourite of mine. I grew up with it. The the last verse, the last couple of verses, so powerful. Um, no guilt in life, no fear in death, and no power of hell or scheme of man can pluck us from His hand. So why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 12? We've been going through the Gospel of Luke in a series called Jesus Worth Following. If you're not too familiar with what we've said so far as we follow the story of Luke, our teaching is online. Tune in to previous weeks. We've had uh, 11 chapters worth of good stuff. Where are we uh, up to in the story of Luke? Well, before I read the passage, just a reminder that um, Jesus has been growing in popularity. He's had uh, the crowds that are following him multiply. So many more people interested in his preaching, having seen his miracles. They want to know more. They're following him about the place. He's been traveling. He's had the 12 disciples. He's sent out the 72 as well. So his ministry is really on the upside. But that's not been without its trouble. That's not been without its opposition. He's had the growth of um, threats and... um, well, blasphemy, really, from the Pharisees, from the scribes, from the teachers of the law. We saw last week, just at the end of chapter, uh, well, throughout chapter 11, that he was pronouncing woes on all of those people who refused to see him as Messiah King. And we read at the end of chapter 11 that the scribes and the Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely. And there was possibly, even now, for him and his disciples, fear for their life, fear for their safety, as they continue to meet this opposition. So we're reading from chapter 12 today, verses 4 to 34. Well, if you've got it there, why don't you read along with me? Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are five sparrows sold for two? Are uh, not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.' If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Shall we just pray before we get into it together? And Lord, we don't just... Um, love and desire to know your character better, we love and desire to know your word better, what you've said about yourself and how you've told us to follow you and to be lights in this world. So we thank you for this time that we could spend in your word, Lord. Please speak to us clearly. Please use me, Lord, and may your Holy Spirit do his work of uniting us to you and of illuminating the truth here, Lord, applying it to our hearts. And we do want to be people who are fearless for your name and people who prioritize your kingdom and your people above ourselves and above our own desires and we ask this in Jesus name amen Amen. (laughs) just keeping time don't worry So I do want to thank you for joining us and anyone online or later in the week. It can be a battle, I understand, to come to church, to listen to a message. Um, But thank you for your sacrifice. I I pray that this time really blesses you. Now, as we look at the first section, verses 4 to 7, Jesus really here is encouraging his disciples. He's talking to them specifically, more privately. Uh, the crowd are around and can listen in, but this really is an encouragement to them in the face of the opposition that they've been seeing uh, from the Pharisees. It's really quite linked to the earlier few verses as well of chapter 12, where Jesus starts off in verses 2 and 3, saying that nothing is covered up that will be, will not be revealed or anything hidden that won't be made known. Anything you said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Um, That's not actually supposed to cause the disciples themselves fear and terror. It's really um, an injunction against the Pharisees. It's really saying, here's why humanity has got it wrong. People who oppose us, who oppose God, they're the ones who need to be worried. What do we see in verse 4? I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do to you. So it is um, important to be honest and upfront about Christianity, you might be new to this, you might be still thinking about it and not know whether you feel like it's worthwhile to pursue Jesus or following him. Um, But don't let Christians tell you that it's all clean and easy sailing, that life gets so much better, because there will be trials, there will be opposition. Um, We don't experience the worst of it in our country, we thank him for that, but these people, uh, we've, we prayed for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted across the globe, where it could cost your life, it could cost your property, your family, to say that you love Jesus. As, as simple as that. And Jesus is encouraging his disciples in the face of such harshness towards them, in the face of such death threats. Well, actually, what's the worst they could do? All they can do is kill the body. Now that actually sounds quite serious, especially to us when we might, at worst, have people call us names, call us Jesus freaks, or um, call us intolerant or haters because we're Christians, and we might therefore not be respecting their choices in life or their views. That might be the worst we face. But Jesus is saying, even if the worst that anyone in this life can do to you is take your life away, that's actually not all there is, because there is another life, and there is God who is in charge of both this life and the next. That's what we see in verse five. Jesus says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Again, this isn't um, some kind of scare tactic. This isn't some kind of fear propaganda. Christians aren't motivated or um, just told to obey out of fear. We've not got some cruel dictator. As a master jesus is is using the logic here that if you uh, love the opinions of man, if you love your status and your power and your things more than God, then you 're being really quite stupid, because God is so much more and has so much more control and is so much more bigger than any of those things. Um, So when I was about five or six years old, um, I went with my parents to a supermarket, massive, great, big supermarket. And um, I used to fancy myself as a bit of a spy when I was younger. I used to run around all the aisles and try and get lost, actually, and try and hide from my parents and pretend I was sort of spying on them, go under the clothes, racks, that sort of thing. Um, And then to my panic, I did actually lose them. um, And I was very worried and scared. I I thought, what if they've left the shop without me? Uh, What if we never find each other again? I couldn't find them anywhere I was running around the whole place um, and I, I knew my only choice was to go to the front of the shop where they have the announcement person with the uh, with the microphone there and they could speak out to the entire shop and say is, uh, is this little boy's parents here please come to the front yes I was one of those embarrassing kids who had to get lost and call his parents to the front uh, but actually for me to do that was um, uh, another fear of mine because I was very kind of awkward and shy child and um, it was enough fear to kind of approach uh, the person you pay your money to at the end of the shop. I, I, I would be worried that I wouldn't have enough money and, and, and what would I do if I had the incorrect change and they'll tell me off and these sorts of things. So it was actually overcoming a fear just to speak to the person in charge of the microphone. But I overcame that knowing that my bigger fear was being lost and separated from my parents. And they hadn't gone too far. It was, it was catastrophe uh, averted. But just, just like Jesus is, is saying here, a bigger fear trumps a smaller fear. And it really is quite unreasonable to love man and his opinion over God. Now you'll notice I've been kind of talking about fear a lot. That's how Jesus calls it. But what does he say himself in verse 7? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. You see, it's not actually about obeying out of fear. It is actually love. There is a healthy honour and respect and reverence that we should show to God as master of the universe, as creator, as um, the one in charge of our lives. But that's not to say we should just be... Um, fearful of the punishments if we don't obey him. Jesus is saying here, in verse 6 as well, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? He's giving us two examples, two reasons here, the sparrows and your hairs. Reasons why actually God is so interested in his creation. He's so intimately entwined with its tiniest detail. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Who else knows that? Have you ever tried to count... And the five sparrows sold for two, penny, uh, two pennies, do the maths on that. How much is a one sparrow worth if you get five for two pennies? Well, I'll spoil it for you. The fifth sparrow is actually completely free. Uh, you get four sparrows, buy, buy four, get one free. And uh, that was quite common back in the marketplace back there. And so that that sparrow that has no value to humanity, that is overlooked and doesn't have any worth, actually, Jesus is telling us our Father in heaven doesn't forget a single part of creation. He knows it all, he loves it all, he's caring for it all, he's actively sustaining it all. And that's why we can love him and value him, because he has already valued us so much higher, even than any part of the creation. We are the crowning jewel of his creation. If you read through Genesis and you remember how he proclaims the, um, his creation good after each day, but after he makes humanity, it becomes very good. So as we move on to the next section, um, all of these kind of uh, eight verses from 4 to 12 are again to the disciples, encouraging them in the face of opposition. But when there is a love of man versus a love of God, that's going to drive you to two outcomes. There's two choices that you can make there then. We'll look at the positive choice first. If your love of God is greater, remembering that he values you so much already, that will lead you to verse 8. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. So, we get that promise, we get that security that if we're happy to identify ourselves with Jesus and tell people, yes, I, I believe in this heaven and hell stuff, I believe in angels and God, and that Jesus really was God, died and rose again for me. If you're willing to take that step of faith and that potential to look silly in front of people, Jesus is even happier to call you his brother and his friend and to prepare that place for you in heaven and to confess you before the angels. So are we confessing or crucifying? Verse 11 and 12, also bonus, when, the, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Verse eleven seems to be a specific promise of Jesus alluding to later in Acts Luke and Acts written by Luke as a two parts to the same one story, and particularly we can think of um, when Stephen was being persecuted and was killed and when the Apostles were in that place of being brought quite literally before the synagogues, before the rulers of man, that is when the promise was really being made literal to them. That the Holy Spirit gave them the words to powerfully and fearlessly proclaim that Jesus is Lord. For us though, verse uh, 12, the Holy Spirit will teach us what to say. It wasn't just for the disciples facing persecution soon after. We get the guarantee, we get the deposit, the security, of God in us, that is his Holy Spirit, that's how we know he's chosen us, that's how we know he loves us and won't leave us, and it's more than that, the Holy Spirit is actively at work, he teaches us what to say, I'm very thankful for that as the one speaking, and if I feel as though I haven't quite done as much prep as I should have, thank the Lord that the Holy Spirit teaches you at that hour what to say, and he does walk with us moment by moment, giving us the grace we need to follow him and to risk our status and our relationship with people for identifying with him. But what is the other response if we're not putting the love of God first and we are actually putting the love of man first? Then we are told in verse 10, Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That is uh, a tricky and challenging verse. We'll get on to what it might mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But actually, it seems a little out of place, doesn't it, to read that anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You might expect to read that he wouldn't be forgiven if you deny Jesus, he'll deny you. That's what we just read in the verse 9 before. Anyone who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So where is this additional mercy coming from, that if you can deny the Son of Man, actually there's still forgiveness there? Well... Some of you with more of a Church of England background might be familiar with Thomas Cranmer. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 16th century. He wrote the first two editions of the Book of Common Prayer. But when the religious climate of the country turned back to Catholicism, when it was Queen Mary I came into power, or Bloody Mary, there was uh, suddenly a rampant increase in Protestant persecutions. There was hangings, there was burnings, there was imprisonment. And we know that in 1556 Thomas Cranmer himself privately recanted of his faith. He signed a confession saying that he will submit to the Pope and be Catholic. And so as they brought him out a little bit later to explain himself in the pulpit of the University Church in Oxford, he actually stood up to say, I take it all back. And my biggest regret was ever saying or writing anything that I knew to be contrary to the truth. and. Legend has it that when he was then immediately put to the stake and burnt, he held out his right hand to burn first, the hand that he'd originally signed his confession to give up his faith and to change it all for, that he'd let that bit burn first. Mm. You see, what he actually did was recant of his recanting. He turned away from his turning away, and he knew that he had done the wrong thing, and now he was making it right. So that is where this forgiveness comes from, that even if we speak a word against the Son of Man, hallelujah, we will be forgiven. There is a place for that. Mm -hmm. That is the very nature of repentance, being able to humbly confess before God, I've done wrong, I've got it wrong, but I want you back. Just like you would do in any relationship where you've upset someone, that is how we can treat Jesus and God the Father. I've got a couple of quotes here just to really emphasize this, because... This is really such an amazingly encouraging and hopeful passage in all the New Testament that tells us of the eventual forgiveness of sin, even such a graven sin, we might think of as denying the Son of Man. Spurgeon said, if God has loved me once, he will love me forever. And Matthew Henry uh, said, let no trembling penitent backslider doubt of obtaining forgiveness. And that was just incredibly encouraging to me this week as I survey my own life and see just how much backsliding there has been over lockdown, just how much of a lack of faith and a lack of time spent in relationship with my Lord. Even in that position, if we are humble and willing to bring ourselves back before him, there is forgiveness. What a joy. But there's two sides to this in verse 10. And we're going to take a look at what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the second part of verse 10. You see, if there is a denial of Christ, if there is a greater love of man and the creation over God, then if there is no repentance to be found, this is the place you can find yourself. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Uh, Our culture loves to... If they believe in a God, see a God that's totally merciful and loving and forgiving and tolerant and that's it. Nothing bad to be said, no hell of course, no judgment of course, but we have to be real and honest that there are difficult and tricky passages like this. I've read that this particular verse, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, has driven some people insane, wondering and worrying if that's been them. And I have had People approach me with this verse, who used to call themselves Christians, who don't anymore, saying, what about this? What about the unforgivable sin? How can you follow your God if he could be like that, if he's not actually that merciful? And I don't pretend to be able to fully explain to you today the full ins and outs of the true meaning of this. But the best explanation seems to be, in the context of where we are in Luke's story so far and where the other Gospels place it, this um, challenge about blaspheming the Spirit seems to always come after Jesus has been accused by the Pharisees, by the, people who, by the Jews who should have recognised him and loved him the most, calling him basically the devil, saying, it's by the power of Satan that you drive out demons. You see, this isn't uh, a one-off act to have blasphemed the Spirit once. It's more of a persistent um, denial of the true testimony of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. It's more of a symptom of a place where you can find yourself, where your spiritual being is so hard and so resistant that actually repentance is impossible in that place. It's not that God has shut you out, it's that you have shut God out. so that is just difficult to talk about but we can be real and honest and say sometimes we have an okay understanding sometimes we don't know the full extent but we will know there is one thing we can be certain of and this is very good news if you are at all concerned that you might have committed the unforgivable sin and blasphemed the spirit then actually that's a fine place to be you can't have be, you can't have committed the unforgivable sin if you're worried and concerned about it that is evidence of grace in your life. That is evidence of God the Holy Spirit working in you to draw you back to himself, to ask for his forgiveness and to repent. So hallelujah. That is something we can be sure of. Don't be worried about that. So now we come on to the parable of the rich fool. This is A very interesting parable, and it is unique to Luke's writings. And we could spend a lot more time on all of these sections that I'm bringing to you today, but we don't quite have the time. But there's a few interesting things to notice about this parable, and it is especially challenging to us in our rich and materialistic uh, Western culture. What's the point of the parable? Uh, Just read verses uh, 15, 14 and 15 again. Uh, Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So Jesus gives us the um, opening and closing brackets of this parable. He gives us the meaning already. He's trying to expose to the crowd of people who are listening to him, who have all sorts of desires and backgrounds going on. This is quite an evangelistic parable. He's stopped talking privately to the disciples now. Someone in the crowd called him out, and he is responding very publicly. So this is an exposing, but also a very uh, generic and applicable uh, parable that anyone could hear and be challenged by. But he he tells us the point is that one's life does not consist in their abundance of possessions. Be on your guard against covetousness, and that the point is to lay up treasures in heaven and be rich towards God. It's a very um, it's a scarily accurate portrait of a man's thinking of of the heart's desires. Look at how many times he's referring to himself. This is the first thing to notice about our rich fool. There's so many first-person pronouns. There's I, me, my, mine. Do you see them all? I will do this. I will tear down. I will store. I will have ample to my soul. That's the first problem that this rich man is guilty of. He's just thinking of himself. There's no uh, hint or clue here of any sharing, of any giving away, of of the increase of what he's gained. There's not the explicit um, challenge that growing in richness is anything negative. It's what he's doing with it. It's storing it up for his own pleasure in life. And that's the second thing to notice. If he's just so self-centred is the first thing. The second thing is that he was only seeing this life. There was no reference to God and there was no reference to the life to come. He just, plain and simple, wanted pleasure now, wanted life, merriment and comfort to living now. He had no thought and ignored how his actions in this life will have rewards and consequences in the next. My uh, grandparents are not believers, but even they have a saying that you can't take it with you. And they're actually very generous uh, people. And there's a Roman proverb that says that money is like seawater. The more you have of it, the more you drink of it, the thirstier uh, it makes you. And as I was uh, reading through and preparing on this parable, it seemed to me to speak in very similar terms of language to Ecclesiastes. I don't know how... um, how much you've uh, how familiar you are with Ecclesiastes how much you've read it but um, if I'm being honest there was times in lockdown where um, I was finding it particularly difficult to uh, read the word and, and spend time learning more about God and all I could really bring myself to dwell on all I really wanted to listen to was Ecclesiastes and I recommend you to take a read of it this week or better yet listen to it as an audio book. Because it, it seems to me that the language is so similar and the message and the theme is so similar. In verse 20, Jesus says that God said to the rich man, the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? And in Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19, you'll see that on the screen. I just see such a similarity here of the wisdom going on. It says from uh, verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Ecclesiastes can seem like quite a depressing book, where in the ESV we've got the translation vanity. Perhaps a closer uh, translation would be pointless. And that, f- that word is repeated many times. It speaks at great length about the pointlessness of life. But the author of Ecclesiastes had the same tunnel vision as our rich man, only focusing on himself and the sinfulness of humans, only focusing on this life and not the next and the issue here is that who knows whether the person who comes after will be wise or a fool. That is especially extra challenging when you think about the people around us in this culture, in this city, they are working so hard to lay up for themselves things to enjoy in later life. but. We don't even know when the end of our life will come. And when it does, where has all the things that we've worked for, where will they go to? They might be completely squandered and wasted by someone else, and we have no control over that. How pointless does that sound? And similarly, uh, later on in Ecclesiastes uh, uh, chapter 8 and verse 15, I'm quoting from the New Living Translation, it says, The author says, So I recommend having fun, because there is nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. That way they will experience some happiness along with the hard work that God gives them under the sun. Don't understand me wrongly the Bible isn't saying here, yes, just enjoy your life, be happy, enjoy the fruits of your labour, take it easy. No, that's exactly, this is almost sarcasm from our author of Ecclesiastes. If you don't care about God, and if you don't care for his love, his value for you, or the next life, then the best you've got is to enjoy this life while it lasts. The best you've got is to live for pleasure as brief, as it is and as pointless as it is, that's still all there is to look forward to, is a a whisper and a sigh of, of hedonism. So going back to our passage in Luke, this is what Jesus is challenging the crowd to, knowing that so many hearts would be bent on having material wealth. And he turns it on its head and using the rich man, the rich fool, helps us to see that what could have been an opportunity to benefit those around him, what could have been a blessing to share, actually became a stumbling block to his soul. We are blessed to be a blessing. And the things that you can take with you, the things that are worth working for, are relationships. And that is a wonderful thought that our relationship with God and our relationship with his born-again family is something that will grow infinitely as we get to know each other better and better. So investing in the kingdom's relationships is what's going to last, is what we can take with us. But what does that look like, to invest in the kingdom? And what is the kingdom? We go on to talk about that in the third section uh, from verse 22. And I'll just read that again for us. If then you are not able to do a smaller thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, but your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So after having dealt with the crowd, with the public, with people still wrestling through what they believe about God, and whether they would call themselves a Jesus follower... And the indulgences of excess and how that steals the soul away from God's kingdom and God's principles. We turn in this next section back to the disciples and what to do with the opposite problem. When you're worried because you won't have enough. If we're not going to pursue material things then, how can I be sure I'll I'll have enough and I'll be provided for? And what does it look like to pursue the kingdom? Well, Jesus gives us many worries here, uh, many reasons to not worry. Three different things. He talks about the ravens in verse 24, how they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, but God still feeds them. And uh, animals don't particularly have a clever strategy to life. They're not particularly planning for their future. Uh, But uh, even acting on instinct, God looks after them and makes sure there's enough for them. So why would he not look after us and make sure there's enough for us? And um, verse 25 and 26, he's almost, Jesus is almost being a bit humorous here. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Or different translations might say adding a a, a cubit to your height. And if you're not able to do a smaller thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? What are the benefits of worry? What, What does investing in anxiety bring us? Jesus says nothing, it can't accomplish anything. And actually modern medicine will probably tell you that quite the opposite is true, that too much stress and worry in life could potentially reduce your life expectancy. Uh, One commentator put it this way, that being anxious is like uh, being imbalanced in your mind, and that we are being anxious when... uh, Worry is the reflection of the tensions that we have when we feel that life is out of our control. It is the result of feeling isolated in the creation. And that does sound like a terrifying place. That does sound like a place where you would feel anxious if you felt isolated in the creation. But is that how God our Father wants us to feel when He looks after His creation so well and we're the best bit of it? What's the third reason He gives us not to worry? Verses 27 and 28. Mm. Consider the lilies how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And uh, it seems as though Jesus might have been talking about Um, these kind of blooms of anemones that would crop up across Palestine. Um, You'll see see an image maybe showing what it would have been like after uh, a season of dryness, when there was rain on the mountainside. They would bloom out in their fresh colour and seem like such a beauty, especially after a season of trial and hardship. And uh, I myself was in um, Sandringham Estate last week and they keep the grounds there very nice. But it was so lovely one day, which is the next day thrown into the fire. Uh, What's what's that about? Verse 28, if God so closed the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Well, there was um, not always wood available and it was expensive back in Jesus' time to power to be the fuel for your fire and your ovens. So they would use the flowers of the field, the grass, just the trimmings to kind of keep that going. So even that beauty that God designs, um, he clothes, he's going to clothe us in such more rich and, uh, garments than that. What we look forward to and what we have now is pure robes of white righteousness. We are clothed in Jesus's righteousness in a garment that can't be soiled, that can't be stained. He's forgiven us of everything and turned our crimson, red, blood-stained clothes into pure white. Now, there's a very interesting thing to notice here as well. All this time, all the verses we've been looking at so far, Jesus has been calling God by God. The name just Theos in the Greek. But in verses 30 and 31, we see a switch. He starts calling him Father. Do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Mm. That's a very important change to be aware of in our relationship. You see, when you want to become a part of God's family, your status and your relationship to him changes. He's no longer just creator God, distant kind of benevolent character. He becomes your Father. And his people become your brothers and sisters. We're children together. And those are the relationships that we're pursuing in the kingdom. And it's a good father who knows how to look after his children. We won't lack any of our basic needs. So what does it look like, verse 31, to seek his kingdom? We've seen how what building our kingdom looks like. In the example of the rich fool, we've seen what the kingdom of the world looks like in its fierce opposition of truth and calling even Jesus the the enemy. But God's kingdom is his relationships. It's how we are showing his love to one another and how we are richly and generously sharing what we've got and stewarding our resources to bless his good name and to bring people to see his love for us through one another. That is what Jesus is getting at in verse 33 when he says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. You see, our our reward for bearing with Jesus and investing in relationships with his people is not a material reward. And we're not promised to be abundantly blessed with all the riches we could ever want. We're promised to be resourced to do God's will and to not go hungry in terms of fulfilling his plan, not our plan. And it is quite confronting to hear the words, sell your possessions and give to the needy, and that will be looked at in more depth in a few weeks' time when the story of Luke turns to the rich young ruler, who goes away sad because of his great wealth when Jesus challenges him in just the same way. But in the words of the early church father Augustine, God desires not that you should lose your riches, but that you should change their place. That's really the meaning of verse 34 as well. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where we're investing, what we do with our time and our stuff, shows who our true God is. Shows if we truly love ourselves the most, other people the most, God the most. We live for what we love. I do just want to draw our attention in closing to verse 32 which says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That is a wonderful promise. It's a promise that I'm not sure we could even fully comprehend because the kingdom is here, but it hasn't come in its fullness. So God's promise is that we have his power now, his Holy Spirit now, his provision now. We have a father's care now, but it's going to be unimaginably more. We can look forward to a time when his kingdom is here and he returns and everything will be made new and perfect and we will love each other like we always should have done and we'll love him like we always should have done. That's a time I look forward to and he says that it's already ours. We're already in possession of the kingdom. And notice as well that he calls us little flock, just like lowly little sheep, tender and gentle and fragile. (laughs) He's our shepherd, isn't he? And he knows what it takes to care for us, to keep us on track, and he won't lose a single one of us. And while we're thinking through that, here's a few questions for reflection. Is there something you've been holding back from God? Is it your time, your possessions, your skills, uh, serving in some way? Ask him to submit that. Uh, to help you submit that for his better purposes. Where have you been investing recently? Has it been in your, your own kingdom? Has it been in growing in material wealth? Or could you be investing deeper into the relationships that you have, both old and new? And seriously, is there something that you're lacking? Your church family is here for you. Please feel like you can approach someone or the leadership for any needs that you might have. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Livestream. People live and people listening wherever and whenever. I don't want to flatter myself, but wonderful that anyone could be listening anywhere on the globe at any time. (laughs) Thank you so much for your focus, your attention, and for being here. We love you guys.